0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Arvada, Colorado, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Arvada, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Arvada. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well, good morning and welcome, everyone. I am your host, James Orr, and this is a new class in a new series that we're doing on the risks of investing in real estate, the dangers, warning, be careful, all that sort of stuff. So, really, what we're talking about today is we're going to start with looking at the insurable risks when investing in real estate, the things that we can actually get a third party to take on liability on our behalf in exchange for a little bit of money. And we'll cover some of the other risks we have with real estate and some other classes in this series. But today we're primarily focused in on those insurable risks that we've got. So here's a quote. This is uh, George S. Patton, the, uh, the famous, I guess he was a general in, uh, I believe it was World War. I don't know if that was one or two. Anyway, he was a famous uh, general. And so here's the quote, it says, the time to take counsel of your fears is before you make an important battle decision. That's the time to listen to every fear you can imagine. When you have collected all the facts and fears and made your decision, turn off all your fears and go ahead. So what I think he's talking about here is, hey, before we go and make a decision in life, real estate investing decision or whatever it is, it is important for us to evaluate all the different things that we are afraid of, all the different fears we have, all the things that can go wrong, all the dangers, all the risks, all the things that could go not our way, that could cause us to lose our investment, could cause us to lose money, could cause us to to not achieve our goals, our financial independence goals, or our net worth goals, or whatever it is. The time to evaluate all that is before we make an important decision. Before we decide to move forward. That's the time to listen to the fear and to evaluate it all. And then once we've collected all that, then make your decision and turn off all the fears and go ahead. So what are your fears related to investing in real estate? And we're going to go over those in this series of classes. But today I'm primarily going to focus in on The risks that are insurable, the fears you have about things going wrong with a property that you may not be super, you may not want to be super afraid of because they could be easily covered. They could be easily taken care of by someone else by paying them a little money. I want to talk about this idea of risk and specifically, I'm going to talk to you about this idea of a risk matrix. So if you imagine for a minute that there are things that can happen in life that happen super frequently. Like, you know, you, you are much more likely to see this. Like a, you know, a, uh, a, a, an issue going on with the tenant paying late. I mean, I think that's a relatively likely sort of thing, right? The tenant paying late. And honestly, the tenant paying late on a, on a severity scale, yeah, it's not ideal, but as long as we have proper reserves, it's really not that severe. It's not like the end of the world. It's not going to, you know, them being late one time is not going to derail us from achieving our goal. So there's a likelihood component, how likelihood, how frequently things happen, and then a severity component, how severe it is, how far of a setback, how large of a dollar amount are we talking about, how large of a dollar amount that's going to impact us. So things that don't happen very frequently and things that are very low severity, low dollar amount sort of things. We consider those to be low risk. In this case, we're going to call that one. If we're kind of looking at this matrix of uh, likelihood or frequency on the left side and then severity along the top. And then you can see that we multiply these together and we get like a numerical measurement. So a severity of one and a likelihood or frequency of one gives you a low risk of one. If the severity increases, but it's still very likely, it might be a kind of risk a risk measurement of two because it's a two on severity and a likelihood of one. If something is still you know, not very likely at all, and it happens here where you have medium three, then that becomes a severity of three, where it becomes really expensive for us, but it doesn't happen very often. Then you've got stuff where it's increasingly likely, where this was low likelihood, this was medium likelihood, and this was high likelihood, and you can see how the risk kind of grows there really the danger zone, the highest risk for us are things that are very likely to happen and very severe when they do. That's risk number nine here. And so, you know, something that is likely to happen very often and is a high dollar amount, those are the riskiest things for us to think about. So let's talk about insurance now. You can pay money to a third party to take on some risks on your behalf when investing in real estate. These can be risks where they happen infrequently, but can be very expensive when they do happen. For example, your house burning down. Is it possible you could have a house completely burned down? Yes, absolutely, 100%. Is it really expensive if you have an entire house burned to the ground? Not just like a small kitchen fire or something like that, but where the whole house burns to the ground and it's a pile of ashes and rubble at the very end. Yeah, it's really expensive to do that. And what if you owed you know, 80% of what the property was worth when that happened? Not only would you have to pay back the loan on the property, but now you'd also have to rebuild the property if you didn't have insurance. But there are companies, insurance companies, who are willing to accept your payments to protect you in case that unlikely event happens and you have a catastrophic loss, or if you even have a small loss, right? They'll cover small fires, but they'll also cover these large fires. And the way that they can do that is they can look at the overall risk profile of what are the chances of a house burning down? And they can look at that across lots and lots and lots of properties. For you, if you were looking at this, you might say to yourself, okay, look, I got one property. If this thing burns down, that's gonna be really ugly for me. Yeah, it's a low probability thing, but if it happens, it's going to cost me hundreds of thousands of dollars to replace this thing. So you have something that is not likely to happen, but if it does happen to you, it's catastrophic. Or what you could do is you could say, look, I'm going to pay this third-party insurance company, and they're going to have you know, hundreds or thousands of other people paying into this pile of money as well they're going to take off some profit for running the business of the insurance business to pay the salespeople in order to sell the insurance, to pay people to kind of manage and oversee the administration of the insurance policies, and then to pay, you know, people to process claims and to, in some cases, fight claims if they think that there's fraud going on or questionable activities. So they're going to have all those operating costs that they're going to take out of there. But then they have a pool of money where if One of the hundreds or thousands of people that they're collecting money from have a fire, some unfrequent events, they can take that big pool of money that everyone is paying into and they could actually pay to have that property replaced. And because each individual's person's chance of having a fire is really, really low, but over a 1,000 properties, it is a higher chance that there is going to be a fire on one of those 1,000 properties, they are likely to pay out a bunch of money on that thing. Um, and that's how that works, okay? So getting back to insurance. So it's not likely to happen if it happens infrequently, but if it does happen, it's really, really ugly, like that fire. But for a small fee, you could pay someone else to aggregate this risk, as we described with the insurance company. So for a relatively small fee, they can insure you against loss and make a profit because it's not just about them covering your loss, they have to be in business to make money to pay the people that work for the insurance company to do that. Now, if you had a large enough number of properties yourself, you could technically self-insure, right? Or I mean, you could self-insure with one property, but it may not be prudent for you to do so. But imagine for a minute that instead of the insurance company collecting premiums from a thousand different people, because they have a thousand different properties spread out across a different city or a different state or a different country, so they have some risk where it's not going to be like, you know, a forest fire where all the houses in a certain area get burned down. It's not like you've got, you know, a thousand units all in one spot. But if you had all your properties geographically diversified, you could choose, instead of paying the premium on a thousand different properties to insurance company, you could say, look, you know, the economics now say that for a thousand different properties I have, I could take the money that I would have paid otherwise to this insurance company. I could set it aside so that when I do have a fire on one of my thousand properties, I will have money set aside to be able to do the, to to protect myself and to rebuild the property in case there is a fire. So you could self-insure. Now I'm ignoring for a moment here that if you get a loan on the property, the lender is going to require that you provide proof of third-party insurance. In most cases, they will not allow you to self-insure. And I'm ignoring that fact. But if you have all these properties free and clear, if you have a 1,000 properties free and clear, you could choose to self-insure. You could choose to be the one that sets aside all the money that you would have otherwise been paying for a premium, and then use that when you have fires on your properties or other events. I mean, we're using fire as an example here, okay? So that is the idea. Instead of doing it and saving the money yourself, which you should be doing even if you decide not to pay a third-party insurance company, it's not like you save all that money. You save some of it. You save some of the profit that you would otherwise be paying the insurance company. But then you have to take on that role. You have to kind of like, you know, put the money aside, invest the money, have it in a a safe, secure spot where it's available. If you have an emergency, you need to manage that oversight. You need to make sure that, you know, you, you take care of, estimating the amount you should be setting aside and coordinating all that stuff. So you don't actually get rid of those roles. You would have to provide those yourself if you decide to self-insure. Or you could pay an insurance company and all those rules are taken care of for you by a team of people that are doing this, okay? There we go. So let's talk about what the insurable risks are. So these are the most common insured risks. We mentioned one already, the risk of fire. So some people are concerned, you know, what happens if I buy a rental property and the house burns down? Well, you could buy insurance where the insurance company will cover you in case you have a fire on the property. And it's relatively inexpensive. You know, for the fact that you could have to replace a, you know, $400,000 property, you might be able to get fire insurance for, I don't know, $1,200 a year. You know, It's going to vary a little bit depending on market and what else they're covering and things like that. But they can insure you in case your entire property burns down for about $1,200 a year. The chance of it happening is low, but when it does happen, the chance of a large payout is definitely there. They could have to spend, you know, more than the amount of money um, than they collected in order to deal with your fire. Similarly, lightning damage. That's another commonly insured one where they will cover damage caused by lightning. Or another commonly insured one is hail damage. Where you have hail coming down and it damages your roof, it reduces the lifespan of your roof, or damages the paint, or breaks windows, or breaks plastic, or damages wood on your property. You can have severe hail damage and you can have that covered by an insurance company. Insurance companies will often also cover theft. So someone stealing something from your house, you know, taking something off of your house or you know, cutting your air conditioning unit and actually walking away with it. They can cover things like that, where you will be covered for those sort of things. So if you're concerned about, you know, what if someone comes and steals my air conditioning unit, you can get insurance for that. And and the point I think I'm trying to make with some of these insured ones are, you know, there are legit things to be concerned about when you invest, honestly, with anything. In in life, there's risk, right? So there are true risks. And no matter what we do, we choose to take on additional risk. When we invest in real estate, just like we would choose to take on additional risk if we took our money and invested in stocks or bonds or crypto or um, Beanie Babies or started to start, a, decided to start a business or we hid the money under a mattress, like everything we do has some type of associated risk. By choosing to do that thing, we take on the risk associated with that unless we can purchase insurance from a third party where we eliminate that risk. We transfer the risk from us in exchange for a little bit of money to someone else who then has part or all of that risk. Because sometimes it's not like they're covering everything. For example, with the insurable risk like FIRE, you will probably have a deductible. There's going to be part of it that you need to pay out that is your responsibility as part of the insurance claim. And then the insurance company will pay the rest up to certain limitations as outlined in your policy. Okay, so for example, theft is another one where they will cover things like that. They may also cover vandalism. And vandalism is an interesting one because I think we, uh, we a lot of times we'll think of vandalism like you know someone spray painting a fence or um, you know someone spray painting a garage door or damage to a car on the property or something like that. But sometimes vandalism can be things like people deliberately smoking meth in a property or cooking meth in a property. I think depending on how the policy reads, and you'll want to definitely talk to your insurance agent to understand what is covered and what is not covered. But that may be considered an act of vandalism. Okay? So realize that that may be a weird one for you, but it could be something that's covered. Personal injury. What if someone gets injured on your property? You know, you hear a lot about this in like asset protection classes where we talk about protecting yourself when you acquire these properties, protecting yourself and protecting the other properties you own from being taken in case somebody gets injured on the property or you injure somebody driving around town or doing something else. Like... There are, there is insurance you can buy to protect yourself from somebody coming after you to, for an injury that they had or sustained on a property or that you caused them somewhere else. So personal injury and then liability. You know, if you do something wrong that was not intentional or deliberate, but it was accidental, there is insurance that you can get that covers some additional liability there. Okay? And I'm not an expert on insurance. You really need to go talk to your insurance agent to understand like what is covered and what is not covered. Don't go to them and say, but James told me that it works this way. Understand that what your policy says, what is written in your policy is going to be what is covered. And get clarity from your insurance agent. That's part of what you're paying them for is to help you understand what is and is not covered. And ideally you want them to give you their opinion in writing so that you have it written down somewhere um, in case it ever comes up in the future that you need to have some type of you know, discussion about why something is or is not covered uh, when you thought it was, okay? So those are probably the more commonly insured risks, fire, lightning, hail, theft, vandalism, personal injury, liability, okay? Now, there are some less commonly insurable risks. For example, loss of income. Something happens to your property, like a fire, and now you no longer have rent coming in while you're waiting, six months for the insurance company to get the adjuster out there for the, to get approved for the money to be actually sent to you for you to line up all the contractors and get all the work done. And, you know, you have, you know, one month of, of demo to take down the stuff that was burned and left there. And then it takes you another couple months to get everything else done in order to get it built out. And then by the time, you know, two months later, you know, it might be six months or a year, by the time you get your property back working and guess what you have a mortgage payment that is due every month, even though the property is burned down. So potentially problematic. So you can get insurance that covers loss of income where you're unable to collect on the property because the condition of the property is there. You can get the insurance company to actually give you money as part of the policy. I mean, you're paying in, you're paying for this insurance. It's not free. You pay them money so that if you have loss of income on the property where you're unable to collect income on it, then they can actually pay you so that you can then use that money to pay your insurance company, your your, uh, mortgage company. Taxes, insurance, like all that stuff. Okay, so loss of income is a type of insurance, not as common as you know fire policy, but many landlord policies do include this. So ask your insurance agent about it. Make sure that if it's something you want, something you want to pay extra for, that you can get it. And you know we've been talking a lot about the idea of uh, you know improving cash flow and increasing cash flow on rental properties. And the issue I think we have for a lot of folks is that some of these things. You are deliberately choosing to have lower cash flow. You're increasing, you're voluntarily increasing your expenses by getting more and better insurance coverage so that should something happen, your cash flow is saved. Right. Because if you have, if you decide not to get insurance for loss of income, and then something does happen on your property, you could have six months of zero rent coming in. That would be really ugly on cash flow. So instead of doing that, maybe we choose to pay, I don't know how much it is, but maybe it's you know $20 or $25 more per month to have this loss of income coverage on our insurance policy. I have no idea what the number is, right? Because I don't actually handle my insurance, Tammy does. But the idea is you could choose to have $25 per month less in cash flow normally in exchange for should something happen, you're not going to have... As severe of a loss where it goes down to zero. And then you need to weigh that and determine if that's worthwhile for you. Okay. So, another less commonly insured risk is flood. If a property is in a flood zone, the lender will often pull a flood certification to find out if it is in a flood zone. And if it is, they may require you to have flood insurance in order to protect them in case there is a flood in that particular property. But you can voluntarily choose to get flood insurance as well. It's not that if the lender doesn't require it, I don't need flood insurance. That's not true. You know, just because your property isn't in a, you know, federally recognized flood zone, I'm using that in quotes, right? Like the it shows up on the map as a, you know, 100-year flood zone or 500-year flood zone or whatever the numbers are. Again, talk to your lender if you need to understand the details because I just understand the general idea. But if you were in a flood zone, the the lender may require it but it doesn't necessarily mean just because you're not in the flood zone that you can't have flooding there are times when unexpected things happen and you could have flooding in a different area and flooding is not always defined in a way that you might think it could be water running horizontally in some form or another so you know imagine you have something happen to a house next door and you know it over time kind of like has this major problem and then there's a massive release of water from that thing like a pool or something and then that pool actually floods into your yard and there's horizontally moving water that could be considered flood you'd have to read the definition and understand what is covered and what is not covered it's not necessarily water from a you know a, a like river that is overflowing so realize you can get that as a separate policy. It is not only when it's required by the lender that you have to get it. You can choose to purchase flood insurance separately. Some other less commonly insured ones, earthquakes. In some markets, that's really important. You yeah. know, Where we live, hardly anyone gets any earthquake insurance. Hurricanes or tor- tornadoes. Don't get a lot of hurricanes around here, but in a lot of markets, you get hurricanes. And tornadoes, probably get some tornadoes here, especially on the plains but you could purchase those as additional insurance. Uh, You can get insurance to cover if somebody cooks or smokes meth in your property. And you can test the property for meth before you make your purchase. And you could test it after each tenant moves out. Now, is it practical to do that? What's the cost of a meth test? You know, to get an industrial hygienist in there in order to test to see if there's meth showing up in the property. I don't know. Could be couple hundred dollars could be a thousand dollars could be $2,000 depends on the type of tests and what they're doing there. So is it practical to do that after every tenant moves out? Probably not, but maybe in your market, maybe for the types of properties you're doing, but what are you going to do if it does test positive? You're going to keep their, you know, $800, $1,200, $2,000, $3,000 security deposit might not be enough to cover you for the math there. So may want to make sure that if you're concerned about that, that you could get insurance and that it does cover that. Now, th- does every insurance company have to offer you all these insurance policies? Do they have to commonly, do they have to insure things like FIRE? No, but I think most of them will. Do they all have to cover things like meth? No. Can you possibly purchase additional coverage for things like meth? Yes. Might you need to go to a additional third-party insurance company to get that additional coverage for meth? Maybe. Maybe. And you can get the last of the, le- of the less commonly insured things are rent guarantees. So you can purchase, if you're paranoid, you're like, look, I want to invest in real estate, but I'm really, really nervous that my tenant is not going to pay rent. You know, that they're going to lose their job and they're going to un- be unable to pay. You can technically go purchase rent guarantee insurance, where it guarantees you rent if the tenant doesn't pay. So you can go and do that. You can purchase that. It comes at a cost. So, realize that there'll be a fee for doing that. So, you're going to give up cash flow elsewhere in exchange for having that rent guarantee. I think a lot of landlords, a lot of real estate investors will choose to forego rent guarantee insurance and instead decide to set aside some money, mentally or otherwise, in the form of reserves in case a tenant doesn't pay rent. But you can get that insurance. All right, let's do a brief discussion on deductible size. First, let's talk about what a deductible is. A deductible is the amount of money you're responsible for before the insurance kicks in. So let's say your deductible on hail damage is $2,000. Basically, if there's less than $2,000 worth of hail damage, you're paying that claim. So you make a claim with your insurance company. They send an the adjuster out. They say, "Look, the total amount of damage is eighteen hundred dollars. Your deductible is two thousand dollars. So you're responsible for this eighteen hundred dollars." Okay, and you pay a certain dollar amount for the insurance and that deductible amount. If you decide, "Look, I want to have a five hundred dollar deductible," they'll say, "Sure, we're gonna we'll allow you to do a five hundred dollar deductible." But then the insurance cost. The amount of the premiums you're going to pay in order to get that insurance will be higher than someone with a $2,000 deductible. Or you could say, "Look, I want a $10,000 deductible. I will cover everything up to the first 10k, but after that, I want you to come in." Insurance company say, "That sounds great because we're much more likely to see these small amount claims." So, in order, if you want to do one where you pay the first $10,000 and then we only cover after that, we will let the premium be much lower. You'll have to pay in less in premium in order to do that. So it's this balancing act between how much you. Willingly have as a deductible versus how much you're paying on premium and how much that's impacting cash flow. And they both impact cash flow, right? Because if you have a small claim, let's say it's at $1,800 worth of hail damage, if you have to pay that $1,800 out because you set your deductible at $2,000, well, now that $1,800 is an expense. So you've reduced your cash flow by that. But maybe in order to reduce your deductible to $1,000, it costs you you know $30 a month in order to have that lower deductible with your current insurance coverage so you choose to have $30 per month less cash flow or at some point you might have to pay that $1,800 or that's really the difference if you went down to $500 be you know $1,300 difference or whatever it was okay so if your risk tolerance is very very low you could choose to keep your insurance deductible very very low you could say look I, I don't want any surprises I want my deductible to be $500. And if something is less than $500, I'll take care of that. But if it's over $500, then I want to make a claim and I want the insurance company to pay for that, anything over the $500 costs, okay? So then if you have a claim, you need to come out of pocket very little. However, your insurance premium will be much higher, which will impact your cash flow. And if you're making lots of claims, you will have higher premiums and may not have many as many choices for insurance companies if they opt not to renew you or decline you for coverage because of the number of claims and the types of claims you're making. right? The insurance company is in the business of making money. And if they find out that you as a person are making a lot more claims than the other people that they're selling policies for, they may choose to say, okay, we're just choosing not to renew you. We're going to not give you coverage anymore because you are a statistical anomaly we lose money on you. And I think they expect to you know, have payouts over the aggregate. But if they look at you and they're like, hey, look, this person made three times as many claims um, on one house as, as the average number of people in our rest of our pool of people. They may choose to say, we just don't want to insure you anymore because we don't want to have that exposure. Okay? So if you're making lots of claims... A lot of times the insurance company says, okay, we're going to charge you higher premiums. And maybe they even say, we're not going to insure you at all anymore. Go find insurance somewhere else. Okay. Now my personal preference, and you can do whatever you want. My personal preference is to partially self-insure by having a much higher deductible, lower insurance premiums, and paying for the smaller claims out of pocket. So my preference is, I want to have higher deductibles. If a little thing comes up, I'm not going to make a claim to the insurance company. I think of insurance as more of a catastrophic, if major stuff happens, then I want them to come in and I want them to pay for stuff. I'm not going to usually make a claim. Like if we had a hail damage one for $1,800 and the you know my deductible is $1,500, I am not making a claim for them to pay $300. I don't want to have that as a claim on there. I'm just going to cover it. And my general rule of thumb is, I want to see the amount the insurance company, you know two or three times the deductible amount. So if it's $3,000 worth of hail damage and my deductible is 1,500, then maybe I'm making a claim, you know, more likely I want to see it even higher than that. I want to see like, you know, the, the total amount of damage is $4,500 and my claim is my, you know, my deductible is 1,500. And that's sort of like the two to three times the deductible amount. And there are lots of exceptions to this rule, right? I think, you know, it doesn't have to be two to three times if we're talking, you know, a, uh, I guess it would be that with the deductible size, but you know, are we talking like, you know, $50,000 size? Maybe I do choose to do it when it's not two times in. So there are lots of exceptions. So be prepared if you do that to pay two or three times your deductible amount for repairs. So you shouldn't be thinking to yourself, okay, well, as long as I have $1,500 set aside for my deductible, then I'm good to go. There's some people that think, you know, the amount that they should have in reserves is related to the size of the deductible on the property. I don't think that's true because these are not the only risks you have. Insurable risks are just one of the risks we have when we buy rental properties, which we'll cover in future classes, okay? So that's it. That's the discussion on insurable risks when investing in real estate. So in conclusion, life has risks. We, we have risks we face every day, getting up, driving in the car, going on the subway, walking around, you know, eating certain foods, being in relationships with other humans, like there are risks in everything that we do. When you choose to invest in real estate, you choose to take on additional risks. Just like if you chose to skydive or you chose to invest in stocks or you chose to invest in bonds, those all have additional risks associated with that particular activity or investing type, okay? You can shift the risk from yourself to someone else by paying a premium. That's what insurance is. We're choosing to pay someone, a third party, to take on that risk for us, and then they will aggregate that across a whole bunch of people so that they can be profitable, support their business, pay their salespeople, pay their admin, pay all the CEOs, pay all the the the, the, uh, the building costs and everything else, and then also be able to pay out the claims that we have on all these things. So yes, you are paying more than probably what it costs you. But if you're the, if you're insuring like one or two or three or even 10 properties, you don't have enough of the properties to really have a good way to kind of spread that risk out over a large number of things. Okay. And if you really are going to self-insure, you should study this and understand what number becomes the number you should have to kind of be able to make a reasonable self-insurance play. All right. So that's it for conclusion. Have a great day, everybody. I will talk to you all tomorrow.